I love the old hymns and I, I love good praise music, but there are some things that are classic and you can't date them and that's one of them. Thank you, Carolyn. That makes Easter, Easter for me to hear her sing the Holy City. I only have one problem. Every time she sings it, I have this horrible urge to stand up there and belt it out with her, <laughs> especially when she comes to forevermore. <clears throat> I want to emphasize forevermore. Aren't you glad there's a new Jerusalem that is awaiting us, a new city, and it will be better even than the old, and the old is fascinating. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 27. We've been traveling towards the cross with Jesus these past weeks. And we have been looking at what he underwent as he was going to the cross. And today we choose an aspect of the cross that needs to be discussed before we leave it. I've been doing everything I could to help you teachers. I know you're in Matthew, and one man told me last week, he just went into his class and said, let's have prayer and go home. The pastor's covered my outline. <laughs> I'm glad great minds think together, aren't you? <laughs> but there is an issue about the cross that you must not let slip by at this passion season. For in Matthew chapter 27, there is a brief account of something Jesus experienced that calls to mind a most important truth about the cross. It's beginning in verse 29. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they, they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. I would call this message undergoing failure. The scene is a bedtime prayer scene. It is Dennis the Menace. He's got his cowboy hat on, his cowboy boots, and a six-shooter strapped to his side over his pajamas. He is kneeling by the bedside, and he says, the caption reads, here I am, Lord, to turn myself in. <laughs> I've knelt beside this bed to turn myself in, to confess my sin, to turn myself in, to acknowledge that I have failed you, to turn myself in. I'd never quite thought of it that way, but that's what we do, isn't it? We turn ourselves into God and tell on ourselves, Dennis the Menace instructs us. The cross was to the world a failure, a sign of failure. 
But in the eyes of God, the cross was a sign of victory. Satan had done everything he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross and fulfilling prophecy. In the world, the cross was still a failure. That's why Paul says in the book of Galatians that it is to the Jews an offense. It is offensive to think that their Messiah would hang on the center cross. That's an offense. I want to set before you today a very powerful but painful word. And the word is failure. If Jesus entered into every human experience, certainly he entered into failure from the eyes of the world. And that, my friend, evokes all kinds of emotions from us. When I think of failure, I think of a time when I was a hotshot at age 16 singing my first solo, and I had memorized the words, and halfway through the verse, forgot them completely. And I did what people like Carolyn and myself do over the years. We learn to make them up when we forget them. And I learned early because I was so embarrassed at being a failure in remembering the words to a song. But it may be a moral failure that conjures up in your mind. It may be a financial failure. Or it could be a spiritual failure. There was a time when you were sorely tested to prove your faith. And you failed Christ. I put before you a powerful but painful word. It is the word failure. Now for us to understand how God turned the cross in the eyes of the world failure into victory in the eyes of God, I want you to understand that there are four basic paradoxes to the gospel. Now a paradox is a seeming contradiction. It appears that one half of the paradox contradicts the other half. But they are really a paradoxa, a teaching alongside another teaching, and the two go together in rhythm. And there are four basic paradoxes. You must always remember this. Teenagers never forget this. It is understanding these paradoxes that forms a foundation for a godly value system. If you do not understand this, you will have difficulty when you're faced with a new kind of, of, of political and spiritual correctness that now is even taking, overtaking tolerance as the chief virtue of our day. Here they are. Are you ready? I want you to understand them before we press on with the cross. The first of these paradoxes is found in Matthew chapter 16. It is the paradox of life and death, and death and life in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus stated it clearly, and when you hear it, you'll understand why I call it a paradox. Verse 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There it is. That's a paradox. You mean to tell me, the world says, that the way to live is to die? And the way to die is to live? Right on. That's a paradox. That's a paradox of the gospel. The world doesn't understand that. How can you make a statement like that? Whoever loses his life will find it, and whoever finds or saves his life will ultimately lose it. The man who seeks to save his life and lives only for himself will ultimately lose it, and the man who loses his life and lives for others will really find what life is all about. That's a paradox. That's a gospel paradox. Now, if you don't understand that, you won't understand the cross. Paradox number two. Turn on over to Matthew chapter 20. Here's the second paradox of the gospel. Do you recall when the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus kneeling, asking that her boys could be chief in the kingdom, one on the right hand and the other on the left? Now, watch what Jesus says in verse 26. It shall not be so among you as it is among the Gentiles, that is. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, he gives you a second paradox. Doesn't make any sense. If you want to be great, you must first humble yourself. If you try to be great, God will humble you. If you humble yourself, God will raise you up in the appropriate time. Now, that's a paradox. How can I be great by washing another man's feet? How can I be the chief by first being a servant? That's a paradox. But if you don't understand that, you won't understand the cross. That Jesus, in his humility, offering himself on the cross achieved what God had planned for him, a place at the right hand of the Father. I wish I could have learned that earlier in life. There's a third paradox of the gospel. It is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a marvelous paradox. Again, teenagers, I want you to understand. Students, please learn this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? There's the paradox. There it is. What is to the world foolishness is to God wisdom. And what is to the world wisdom is to God foolishness. And the cross seems such a waste of life. But in the wisdom of God, it is the only way man can be saved. There's your paradox. Being foolish is wisdom. Being wise is foolish. Being wise in God's sight is foolishness in the world. 
That's why the world looks at you and they cannot understand. And that is why you drive down the street and here's a guy, he's got a place on Lake Norman, he's got a 40-foot boat, and he doesn't tithe. And you tithe and you're lucky to drive a four-year-old Chevy Cavalier. And you say, when are things going to be turned around? Let me remind you of the paradox of the gospel, that what is foolishness to the world is wisdom to God. And what is wisdom to God, the cross is foolishness to the world. Now, there's one more paradox to understand the cross. The fourth paradox is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a well-known paradox. Some of us have been exercised well in this paradox. God has worked me up one side and down the other. He has worked me north and south and east and west on this paradox, I promise you. And that is this. He says in verse 9, When Paul prayed for his thorn to be removed, my grace, God said, is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities or weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. That doesn't mean he's a hypochondriac. That doesn't mean he loves to give you an organ recital every time you ask how he's feeling. That means that there's something about weaknesses that produce strength in us. Go on. I take pleasure in infirmities, verse 10, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak. Now, insert the phrase, for Christ's sake, then I am strong. That's the fourth paradox. In weakness, I find strength. In my own strength of the flesh, I find spiritual weakness. There's the paradox. That's why you'll never know the power of God until you've emptied yourself of self. That's why Jesus talks about self-denial. It's one of the paradoxes of the gospel. And we cannot understand the cross until we understand the paradoxes of the gospel. Watch, if you will, the signs of apparent weakness in our text passage. Let's go back now to Matthew 27. And look at the signs of weakness. Depending on how you count them, there are either seven or eight or nine. You be the judge. Let me just point them out to you. These are the things that made it appear that what Christ was going through was failure. Signs of apparent failure in Matthew chapter 27. Well, let's go to verse 27 and begin. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Now, we know that what is going to be described is done in front of the entire garrison of Roman soldiers. They're watching. Now, here are the signs. Number one, underline them in your scripture. They'll be there for you when you read it again. First, they stripped him. Sign of weakness for somebody else to undress you, that's a sign of failure, weakness. Secondly, 
they robed him. They took his own garment off him, and then they took a mock scarlet garment, probably faded, perhaps a discard from another crucifixion, and they put it on him. They put that old mocking scarlet robe on him. Thirdly, they crowned him. Somewhere in the area, they found some thorns, probably about an inch to an inch and a half thick. Not just little prickers, not sand spurs, thorns. And they carefully wove a mock crown of garland of thorns and placed it on his head to mock his kingship. Fourth, they sceptered him. They put a reed, a stick in his hand and said, ha, 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 ha. Look at the king. Look at his scepter. Look at his royal rod. A plain stick. Fifth, a sign of failure. What did they do to him? They adored him in verse 29. Mockingly so, they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And bowed down, making sport of him in front of the Roman garrison. Next, they rose one by one and spat on him. They spit on him. Next, they took the reed out of his hand as if to mock the king's power and said, what a king you are, and grabbed the reed from his hand, and notice the text says, they hit him where, class? On the shoulder? No. On the what? On the head. What was on the head? The thorns. And every time they cracked him on the head with the reed, mocking him, they drove the thorns one more time into his skull. And that's not quite enough. After they had mocked him and struck him on the head, they disrobed him, showing their power over him. They took the kingly scarlet faded discard off of him. By this time, this probably went on for several hours. We don't know exactly how many times that he was hit on the head, but it could have been up to 50 different men sat him in that chair, got down on their knees, mocked him, took the reed from his hand, smashed him on the head, drove the thorns into his skull, spat upon him, and when it was done, they put his robe back on him. Have you ever had an open bleeding sore and the blood began to coagulate on your clothing and when you pulled it off, it opened the sore again? 
I want you to understand what he went through when they disrobed him. That's a casual statement, but it wasn't casual to Jesus in the flesh. And the signs of failure all around, they disrobed him, they robed him, they gave him a, a, a crown for his head, a reed for his hand. Then they worshiped him mockingly. They picked up the reed and smashed him on the head, spat in his face, and after a number of folks had done that to him, they disrobed him again in front of everybody, and then they put a robe, his own robe, back on him. And it was after he'd been up all night, already having been scourged probably twice, that he went through this, and now he must take the cross, he must take the cross up to Golgotha. All those are signs of failure. If you'd been there that day, you would have looked at Jesus and said, what good came out of his life for three and a half years? There's nothing. Is this the way it's going to end? Is this the way it's going to be? Who is this man? If he's the Messiah, how could it be that he's the Messiah when he's been beaten and treated like this? That's what made the world think he was a failure. We always have a hard time understanding God's ways when we try to make God into the direction and the shape that we want him to be for us. And when we're convinced that the Messiah is a political leader who shall lead an insurrection and set up a kingdom, they had shaped God into what they wanted him to be, the Messiah into what they wanted him to be. And based upon that, these are signs of failure. Now would you put on a lens and see it differently? I want everybody to Take a piece of, cell, of yellow cellophane paper. Would you hold up your hand like this, please? Do you have a, pe a piece of yellow cellophane in front of you? Now hold it up to your eyes and look at everybody else through that yellow cellophane paper. Doesn't the world look altogether different through the, that yellow lens? Appreciate your cooperation. Just... Leave your yellow cellophane paper on the pews for the next worship group, if you would, please. I'll appreciate it. And then there were signs of victory. Can I share with you the great signs of victory? From God's perspective, as we see it through God's eyes, now watch the victory. Verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, from 12 noon... After he's put on the cross until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness, and the darkness was over all the land. Now, darkness throughout the Word of God in the prophetic vision always represents judgment. It is a sign of judgment. And I don't know how God brought darkness. It may have been an intense cloud cover. I know this. It wasn't just over Jerusalem. It was over all of Palestine. As if God is saying, what you're doing here 
is a sign of judgment and Christ is taking the judgment of sin for men and women everywhere in the land. And the darkness is a sign of victory. Do you remember when Jesus said in John 16, and now the prince of this world is already judged? That's a sign of victory. The one who is coming back to bring judgment sends darkness over the land. How is it that they missed the sign of victory? Wouldn't you have asked, why did it get dark? I was in, what do they call that? Uh, an aureus borealis, where the, 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 in the middle of the day it turns dark and the sun is hidden. I was in that once. I saw that once with my, with my own eyes. And I tell you, it was a frightening thing in the middle of the day. Sign of victory is the sign that at the cross, God has judged the sins of all men. But there's a second sign of victory. It's in verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from where to where, folks, from top to bottom. It had not aged. It did not shred because it had rotted. If it had shredded because it had rotted, it would have shredded from the bottom to the top. But it was from the top to the bottom. What was it a sign of? It was a sign of victory. It was a sign of the fact that man alienated from God, separated from God, had now had the wall of division torn in two so that through Christ and the blood of the cross we have access into the presence of the Father. That is a sign of victory. That took the death of God's Son to put you into His presence. I wonder what the priest thought who was there in the temple. I wonder if he stood in awe and said, what is happening here? The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Sign of victory. Christ earned our access into the presence of the Father by shedding his blood. And the sign is the sign of darkness, judgment, and the sign of victory. There's a third one. There's a third one. For verse 51 says that the earth quaked. I have a feeling it was a nine on the Richter scale. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. There it is. Of sign of victory that Jesus Christ had borne nature's curse. Christ died to redeem men from the curse of sin, but he died to remove the curse from the earth. You say, you mean the earth is cursed? Yes, from the time of the sin of Adam and Eve to this time of the cross, the earth was under the curse of God. You say, well, where is that in Scripture? God said that the earth would bear thorns and thistles. It was those very thorns and thistles that made up the crown that was placed on his head. Now he shows his victory over nature. He shows his victory over nature's curse by the earth quaking and the rock splitting as if to say, I died to redeem this fallen earth. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 
that even the whole creation waits for the adoption of God's sons. Christ died to remove the curse so that there, when he comes back to rule and reign, there'll be a, a, a new earth and then ultimately a new heaven and a new earth. But there's a fourth victory. There's a victory over death. Verse 53. And coming out of the graves... After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Who is this? Well, it's the opening of graves in verse 52. The graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now there's great discussion among Bible students as to whether the graves were opened and the bodies came out of the graves after his resurrection? Or does the comma belong coming out of the graves and after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many? I do know this. The graves were open. Hell had given up. Sheol had given up those who were incarcerated. Before the cross, men died waiting for the cross. They died looking forward to the blood of the Lamb. They died, and the Bible explains in the Old Testament that Sheol, the place of departed spirits, is made up of paradise and is made up of Hades. And that is why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise, the place of the departed righteous. But now that Christ had died, those who had died looking forward to Christ came out of the graves to show Christ's victory over death. He has defeated death. Sign of victory. Death is defeated. That's why death is not a loss to a believer. Death is a victory. Death is not a loss to, oh, it's a loss of a person. But to that person, it's a victory if they're in Christ and saved. It's a victory. They're the signs of victory. And all of them together point to the victory of the ultimate majesty of God's Son over all the forces of hell. He had done it. He cried out, it is finished. And he voluntarily yielded up his life and said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I don't think Jesus died of exhaustion. I think he willingly laid down his life. Said it's done. So you have victory in judgment. The darkness was over the face of the land. You have victory in the torn veil. Man doesn't have to run from God any longer. He has access to God by the blood of Christ. You have victory over creation. The, the earthquakes and the rocks split. And there's victory over death. For those who had been held in death came out of their graves and they walked through the holy city after the resurrection. Did Jesus win a victory? It may have seemed like a failure to the rest of the world. But to God and to us, it is a victory. Amen? It's a victory. I don't know what failures you have faced, but I want to tell you something. There is no failure of any kind, whether it's moral, spiritual, physical, 
marital, financial. There is no failure represented by anything anybody in this room has experienced that God cannot, by the power of the cross, bring victory out of it. And you may suffer temporarily, but put the emphasis on the word temporarily. There is victory coming. Out of death comes life. Out of weakness comes strength. Out of foolishness comes wisdom. Out of humility comes exaltation. And there in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the paradoxes of the gospel are demonstrated. That's why there is hope. When you celebrate the cross, celebrate the victory of the power of the gospel over sin, hell, death, and judgment. Christ has conquered it all. Out of the 1988 earthquake in Armenia comes the story of a dad who loved his son very much. True story. He had always said to his son, Son, whatever happens to you, I want you to know that I love you so much that I will go to any extent, to any extreme, to see that you are safe. He sent his boy off to elementary school the morning of that huge earthquake in 1988 in Armenia. And the boy's elementary school was just virtually on the fault line, was totally destroyed into a heap of rubble. The father was spared, and he ran for the school and he said, my boy, my boy, and he called him by name, but there was no answer. He worked all afternoon trying to pull pieces of the rubble off from the wreckage to find his boy. He worked all night. He couldn't find his boy. Into the next day, the police came along and said, there's no hope. You're wasting your time. There is no way your boy could be saved in this rubble. But the father said, I promised my son, there's no hope. I promised my, leave it alone, give him up. You're in a state of denial, they said. No, 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 I promised my boy. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was 13 days. Something like that. It was an extraordinary amount of time. People laughed at him. They made fun of him. They got used to him there pulling pieces of the rubble up. And he'd call out day and night, where's my boy? Where's my boy? He'd call him by name. If you're down there, let me know. And he was moving down into the rubble when on that 13th day, and he called out his son's name, his boy said, Dad, weakly, Dad, I'm over here. The man pulled another slab of cement, and after everyone had told him that any efforts at rescuing his son were a total failure, that man found his boy. He picked him up out of the rubble, a broken leg, and the first thing the son said to him was, Dad, you always told me that you would find me and help me. I want to tell you something, folks, to me, as I watch this drama of the cross. 
God is saying to me, I don't care what a mess you've made of your life. I don't care what failures you've had. I don't care where you've been, what problems you've experienced. The cross says God has victory for you and victory for me. And forever the cross is a sign of victory. It is a sign of victory over death, victory over the curse, victory over separation from God, victory over judgment. Christ took my judgment for me. And because the cross has power, he can change my death into life, my weakness into strength, my foolishness into wisdom. God does that because of Christ. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me in prayer. All over this building, all over this building are people who have at one time or another sensed a failure in their lives. You feel like you failed God. You feel like you've let him down. You failed. You feel a failure before your family. I don't want anybody to look around. I don't want anybody to walk out of here. I want everybody to be still and quiet and holy in presence before the Lord. If today you're right there, you feel like you've been a failure. There's been almost no victory in your life. Would you just quietly stand wherever you are? Or you, if you've exper experiencing victory, uh, a failure right now and you sense that, you know that, I want you to stand right now. Would you stand up? Just quietly. Do it. I'm not even looking. I'm not even looking. Just stand up where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. Nobody else is looking. I want all of you who've experienced failure at some point in your life and it's left a pain and a hurt, I want you to join in standing right now. Just stand quietly where you are. Come on, acknowledge it. If I weren't for the power of the cross, where would you be? You failed, maybe the Lord, maybe your family, maybe yourself. Just quietly as you reckon in your heart, where there's been failure, God has given you victory or promises you victory today. How did Christ get victory? He was patient in his trust for God to make a way. Open your eyes. I want to tell you there's victory for you. I don't care whether it's in your marriage whether it's in your finances, out of death, God brings life. Out of weakness, God brings strength. Out of foolishness, God brings wisdom. What a wonderful God to serve. And he gets glory out of it all. I want the pastor just to stand down here. Some of you need to make decisions today. You need to come to join this church. Some of you have never trusted Jesus, or maybe you've privately received him, but you've never made a public profession. I invite you to come. I want some of you who are experiencing a deep sense of failure right now, just come and let us have somebody pray with you. We've sung to you a word of encouragement. Now bring your failure out in the open and say, pray for me.